And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Lamb of God, you took our place. And you provided a way for us to have eternal life forever and ever. We have the opportunity to live with you. Thank you. As your word is now preached and proclaimed, Father, we listen to you. And we come with open hearts, willing to surrender completely to you today and each and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me ask you, does God have your attention this week? <laughs> Tell you what, I smile, but I mean, we've all been dealing with a lot of stress this, this last week. Lots of things happening. Some of you lost power. You didn't have electricity. You didn't have heat. Some of you lost water. Some of you had broken pipes. I'm reminded of family dynamics that we've had. My, my mom and older sister were up in Dallas in which they spent four days without heat, and they were uh, depending upon a fireplace to keep them warm. During that time, Michelle's parents lost all of their power without heat, went over to Michelle's sister, and they didn't have electricity, so they were living off of a fireplace as well for three weeks. And of course, then we were over there um, yesterday and Friday trying to figure out what to do about broken pipes. Now, does anybody know the most valuable commodity this week? CPVC. How many people know the difference between CPVC and PVC? Yeah, if you had broken pipes, you know the difference. Now, I thought no big deal. We'll just get some plastic pipes, put them in there. But there's a difference between CPVC and PVC because CPVC, it addresses the chlorination in the water, and it will stand all the high heat that you have from hot water, something you didn't really come to church to learn about but learned it this week. And as we go through this, it's like, man, what is happening? And I think God is, is truly getting our attention. I hope he is. And if you're the one that's keeping us from getting out of all this, give him your attention, okay? Larry Stein is a horticulturist from uh, Texas A&M. And many of you lost plants. I mean, if you lived here, you lost plants. I mean, everything seemed to, to die. You look at your, your yard now, and it just looks like it's, it's gone. And uh, he is saying, we're telling people, you need to learn to like ugly. I think that whole pandemic thing has kind of taught us to just, we're going to have to learn to like ugly. But I will say personally, I feel like so many things have been happening that I have been so rocked out of my routine, out of things that I'm accustomed to and comfortable with and familiar with, that I really feel like I am focusing on God in ways that I haven't before. And uh, we're going to see today in John chapter 3, a man who should help all of us to see life differently. It's John the Baptist. We have this, another conversation. John takes us into these situations in which we have these conversations uh, with various people. Nicodemus last week, and this week we have a conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples. And it's about as weird as some of the stuff that we've been going through. 
Uh, I was on the phone just a couple of weeks ago talking to our bank, Chase Bank, largest bank in America. And I was calling in about a particular issue with our account, and I was talking to the lady, and all of a sudden, I heard a rooster crowing. <laughs> and, you know, you just, you're, you're picturing yourself, you know, you go through all this voicemail, you've been on the phone for about two or three hours just to get to a person to talk to a voicemail, and then you're hearing a rooster, so you're kind of picturing somebody in this really nice corporate office, and you hear a rooster, I'm thinking, okay, that wasn't a rooster. And then I heard the rooster again. And then we had a conversation and realized that she was working at home, but it was her neighbor's rooster, it wasn't hers. But I thought, that's the world in which we live in right now. You know, roosters are crowing in the most prestigious bank in America. Well, as you think about what we're about to talk about today, it, it kind of feels that way, because there's this whole tension about wanting our lives to matter and to be great, but there just seems to be such a disconnect. There's a documentary out called The Day in the Life, and it talks about different people's experiences in the middle of the pandemic, and one person was saying, one of the greatest fears, not the one, it said the greatest fear I have is my life not mattering. And we're going to get some intel today from John the Baptist about how we can have a life that really matters. It's all found in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. And as we consider John the Baptist in this conversation with his disciples, we will discover that John the Baptist, as we've talked about in, in the previous weeks, he was the greatest individual who had ever lived. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. This is Jesus making the statement. He says, I assure you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. How do you become great like that? I think all of us do want our lives to matter. And probably for a number of us, we want to really matter. And we want to have a great life. And we want to have great influence. And we want to do great things. So what is the pathway to greatness? We find that John the Baptist gives us that information in John chapter 3, verse 30. He says, Jesus Christ must become greater. I must become less. 1978, Scott Peck, a medical doctor, wrote a best-selling book called The Road Less Traveled. And it was an offtake of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Take the right road, makes all the difference in the world. But as Peck opens up in his book, The Road Less Traveled, the first three words of his book are, life is difficult. And in the difficulty of life, it's hard to discern what's really great, how we can be great, and how we fit into the greatness factor in this world. William Carey is a name that, unfortunately, many of you don't, are not familiar with. William Carey was the founder, the father of the modern missionary movement. He packed up and went to India when no one else was going other places to share the gospel. In fact, churches weren't sharing the gospel. They were just depending on people to come to the church. And he went and he did an incredible work and mission enterprises have flourished because of him. And he said, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. 
Talk about William Carey's Savior. How do you get to that point? How do you get to the point that it really doesn't matter what people think about you? Because all of us have probably had a moment in time, maybe at someone else's funeral, and we thought, well, what are they going to say at my funeral? What are the things that will be brought up about me? How will they see me as a, as a good or great person? We all have that struggle inside of us. How do we do that? Like John the Baptist or a, a William Carey. Well, if you get on the pathway to greatness, you will find that not only it is a road less traveled, but there are certain things that we must do if we want to experience greatness in life. And we'll discover the definition of greatness is much different than our culture has today. Travelers on this road, first of all, realize that Jesus is the focal point. The person we always see in the mirror is us, but that's not the focal point of real greatness. Follow along in the conversation here. It says that verse, verse 22 of chapter 3, it says, after this, and you'll notice in John's gospel, remember again that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been written quite a bit uh, earlier than this gospel. So John is writing from a completely different point of view. And as he's writing, he's putting in information that is uniquely different than what you will find in the other three gospels. And he gives us times and places and people. So when you're writing something that is of historical nature, if you're trying to fudge the lines, if you're trying to, 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 to lie about what's happening, you don't include stuff like this. He's talking about times and places and what is happening with people. It says, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where they spent some time baptizing and teaching. John also was baptizing, and they give specific names of cities where they were, out in the Judean wilderness. They were several miles apart from each other. There was plenty of water there. That's another point of reference. And people were coming and being baptized. And then John gives us another important statement. This was before John was put in prison. So what we're seeing right now takes place before what you find in other Gospels. This is a season of life. How long did John the Baptist minister? We picture him being out there ministering for years, probably less than a year. And while he is ministering, out in this particular location before he goes into prison, it says an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, that wasn't really the big issue. Have you ever gotten into an argument with someone by raising another issue? And, and really, you wanted to talk to them about this particular issue, but you kind of went around and talked about something else? You know, you, you started saying, well, uh, you know, our... Are you really going to go there? And then that leads to a conversation about other places that you've been, and before you know it, you're in an argument. Or have you ever been in an argument with someone, and you're like three or four hours into this thing, and you can't remember what you first were talking about that got you into the argument? Well, it's a little bit of what's going on here. Is they're not really that concerned about ceremonial washing? We're going to discover what they're really bothered about. They came to John, the disciples that were in this argument with the Jew. They came to, to John. They didn't ask him about the ceremonial washing. They said, Rabbi, that man, talking about Jesus, and we're going to see why they're so bothered. That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified, still no name, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. That was what really bothered them. 
See, they had linked arms with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist had been out in the wilderness, and huge crowds were coming to him, but now something had shifted. He had baptized Jesus, and now Jesus was out teaching, and the larger crowds were going to Jesus. They were going to someone else's church. Does that ever bother you when people leave Westgate and go somewhere else? Really? It bothers me. <laughs> they're going somewhere else, and it's like that's a better place. And here are the disciples, and they're saying, wait a second, John, we're losing people out the back door. We may want to change our message a little bit. You might want to start wearing jeans in the second service. <laughs> we might need to be doing something a little bit different here because we're losing them. They're going that way. And then Jesus, I mean, John begins to respond back to him to express concern about what their focal point is on. Rabbi, everyone's going to them. They're all working together, doing the same thing teaching, baptizing, more people are going now with Jesus. You know, there's something about us that's very competitive, isn't there? Competitive for attention. I was reading recently, new word for me, a new, new phrase, new concept, attention economy. And we say, well, you live in the information age, information is everywhere, but, but there is this tension point saying that really what we're living in is the attention economy because information is endless. So much, we're inundated, but our attention is limited. And so that's why so much money is being spent on advertisements. That's why when you go to your email, you get flooded with all these different things. That's why if you were talking to Alexa about a particular something, all of a sudden it starts popping up on your computer. We have this attention economy. Everybody is vying for attention. We're vying for attention with other people. We want other people to like us on social media. And I have to say, I don't think I've liked anything on anybody ever on social media because I'm not on social media. I can't keep up with it. It's too, it's too overwhelming for me. And here they are talking about, we need the attention on us. I remember being in a meeting in the Union Association when I was a pastor over in Houston. And the conversation around these pastors in the room was, what, what do we need to, to do for our churches to, to work together? and to do kingdom work. And I was just a young pastor, and I probably said it the wrong way, but I just sense there's a lot of competition between the pastors. So I raised my hand and I said, I feel like we have a lot of competition between churches and ministry. And the guy in a very pompous voice said to me, oh, no, no, that's nonsense. Move on to the next topic. I thought, it's not nonsense. There is competition. There is competition between churches and ministry. Why? Because we don't understand the focal point is to be on Jesus, not upon us. It's so interesting, though, the way that we respond. We, we want to degrade the success of someone else so that we can elevate ourselves. It's part of fallen human nature, the sin nature that we have. Adam and Eve, what happened when, when they got caught in their sin? They started blaming each other. We want to knock someone else down so we don't look so bad. Is this something new? Not at all. You go back to Philippians and you, fall, you find that Paul is writing and he's saying that some people are preaching out of envy. They're jealous of what's happening. Their motives aren't pure. They're just jealous of what else is going on in Paul's ministry and others. It's weird how this works. You think back to Numbers chapter 11 and, and Moses is uh, dealing with some people who come to him 
particularly Joshua. And there were other people in the camp that were prophesying. And they said, we, we got to stop these people, man. They're prophesying. Moses said, wait a second. I wish that everybody could prophesy, was connected with God the way that I am. See, what we see here in this particular passage of scriptures is, is John the Baptist explaining that the road to greatness is to take the focal point off of yourself and put it upon Christ. What is the hardest instrument to play in the orchestra or the band? Second fiddle. We want to be first. And John's disciples are feeling that. We want to be first. We followed you because you were Coke. You were the first one. And everybody was coming to you, and now people are going elsewhere. And what they were saying is, we want the focus on us. And John the Baptist so gracefully said the spotlight was never intended for us. It's intended for Christ. So if you're struggling with that, here's one way to help. Is pray for somebody that you envy. If there's someone that has it better than you, someone that's doing better than you, seems to be greater than you, and you're struggling with this, pray for them. And take it to the Lord and put Jesus in the spotlight instead of yourself. We all struggle with this. And I say yourself, I struggle with this as well. I'm most concerned about the person I see in the mirror each day. Travelers on the road to greatness realize we're not the focal point. Jesus is. And that's why John would say he must become greater and I must become less. And I love the way that's phrased because when you have something that, it, we, 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 like you're comparing something, and you say there's, there's fewer or less. Well, it's fewer if you can count them. Like if you look at two baskets of ap apples and you say there are fewer apples in this basket because you can count the number of difference. But if you can't count the number, you say it's less. And John is saying it's so significant, it's so large, you can't even count it. How much I must decrease and how much Jesus must increase. What a great understanding. And so we, we see the second milestone along the, the, the pathway to greatness as travelers realize that Jesus is a source of goodness and joy. Not our own success, but Jesus is the source of goodness and joy. Follow along in verses 27 through 29. John replied to his disciples that were complaining. A person can receive only what is given from heaven. What he's saying is success only comes from God. And if the success is now on Christ instead of what we are doing, so be it. Because our ministry was simply to put the focal point on Christ. He says, you yourselves can testify. Don't you remember, John is saying, remember when those guys came out, that delegation from Jerusalem, and I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him? He said, I'm just trying to stay in my lane. My job was to preach Christ. The, bridge, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. This is a great analogy, and, I, and I've said this several times in the past, but I just, just need to keep saying it because our culture is so enamored with the, the destruction of marriage, of redefining everything about marriage. Marriage was created by God. It was ordained by God, and it's created for a very specific purpose. We're the beneficiaries, those who, have, who, who get married, we're the beneficiaries of that relationship, but marriage was created to be a marker that points us to God. And in marriage, we see the way the relationship is supposed to work. And so we have a beautiful picture of that. And that's one of the reasons I think there's so many attacks on marriage. It's because if we can get the whole concept of marriage distorted, then it won't have any bearing or mark of what it's supposed to look like with relationship with God. That's the way Satan works. 
If this thing points to God, let's destroy it. And so here we have this incredible analogy of, again, all through Scripture, the relationship of God referencing towards mankind is, is that of marriage. And it says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and he is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Great picture there. How many of you served as a, as a best man in a wedding? Just raise your hand if you were a best man in a wedding. Really, that's all? Okay, you know what it's like to be the best man, but, it, but it's, it's a little bit different because the friend of the bride uh, groom in, in the Hebrew culture was different than the best man today. The best man today is, I mean, basically as long as they can stand up in a suit or whatever they're wearing, and, and, and typically all the wedding ceremonies that I've done, you know, most best men, the best, they struggle to get the, the ring out of their pocket to the groom. But the bridegroom's friend in Hebrew culture had an enormous job. He was very influential in putting the, the wedding together, making sure that everybody's functioning together. And then let's go back in history. If you remember when Jacob was supposed to marry Rachel, do you remember what happened on the wedding night? Laban snuck in the sister. And he didn't realize it because they had a power outage as well. And so the job of the bridegroom's friend took on new meaning in that he would make sure that the bride gets to the marriage site and then he would protect it so nobody did any weird stuff. And then when he heard the bridegroom at the door and recognized his voice because of the relationship they had, then he would let the bridegroom in and his job was done and he was excited. You know, the, the thing about all the wedding pictures, it's, it's amazing when you go to a wedding and it's, it's changed during the pandemic, but, uh, you know, wedding pictures can take like two or three hours. Ceremony is 15 minutes and you're waiting forever for the pictures. And, and you know the drill on the pictures. Who gets into the pictures? Could you imagine being after a wedding, waiting for pictures, and the photographer keeps on saying, okay, now if we could have... Uh, if we could have the best man and the bride together. Okay, I got that shot. All right, now if we could have the best man and the bride and her parents together. And now we need uh, the best man, bride, and all of the aunts and uncles. It's never the picture, is it? The bride, the, the best man is, he's just in a couple pictures and he's done. Because that's not his job. The bridegroom is there by the bride in every picture. And that's what Jesus is, John the Baptist is saying is, listen. I didn't come to marry the bride. Any of you guys marry the bride in that wedding where you were the best man? I hope not. That wasn't your job. The job was to make sure that everything worked for his friend. Travelers realize that Jesus is the source of goodness and joy. The joy is mine. John the Baptist says, I've been in my lane. I am happy and I'm contented that everything is going towards Jesus. Gary Thomas has written a book called Cherish. It's a great, great book about marriage and relationship with that. And in there, he talks about spotlighting. Spotlighting is, is a term that is used in the dance world. I didn't know about it, but, you know, when, when a male dancer is with a ballerina, his job is not to draw attention to the moves that he's making. Every move that he makes, all that he does is to spotlight the ballerina. You're not really even supposed to see him. You're supposed to keep the focus on the ballerina. And that's what John the Baptist is saying is, my job was to spotlight who Jesus is. And if we want to get on the road to greatness, we will see that Jesus is the one that will bring joy into our life. 
Not when everybody likes our post. But when Jesus is in the spotlight, we will find, just like John said, my joy is complete. The word literally means to be running over. Then travelers understand why they follow Jesus. If you're on the road to greatness, you're saying, okay, I'm trying to you know, make Jesus increase, and I'm decreasing, and, and I don't really understand that. That's a problem. Travelers understand why we spotlight Jesus. So look at verses 31 through 35. It says, the one who comes from above is above all. That's why. Because Jesus is above all, and it says everything belongs to him. Everything is in his hands. That's not just some things, everything. And so when you're traveling down this road to greatness, you will only get there if you realize that Jesus is the only one who can bring joy and contentment into our life. Why? Verse 32, he testifies, Jesus testifies to what he's seen and heard. Have you ever been in a situation when you're getting secondhand knowledge? You know, this week, I was really looking for the firsthand knowledge of situations about the power. I wanted firsthand knowledge about what ERCOT really did. I wanted firsthand knowledge about when the water was going to be acceptable and we didn't have to boil it anymore. You don't want secondhand knowledge. And what John is writing here is Jesus is firsthand knowledge from heaven about what really matters, about spiritual things, about salvation. For the one whom God has sent speaks words of God, for God's spirit is within him without measure. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Why do we follow Christ? Because he's the only one that can save us. That was, that was what John the Baptist was, was understanding. He's saying, guys, listen, it doesn't matter if they follow us. We cannot save them. Our baptism isn't going to make a difference in their life. They have to turn to Christ. And that's where we find our joy is realizing that it's not about us. It's about Christ and keeping the focal point on him and understanding why we follow him because he is the only Savior of the world. So let me ask you a last question. Are you on the road to greatness? By turning the attention to Christ, are you on the road to greatness? Or are you on the road to greatest tragedy? Listen to this last verse. John has done everything he can to put all the attention upon Christ, why we focus on Christ, because he's the only one that can save us. And not just save us for eternity. I feel like so much is being missed out these days. But Jesus wants to make our life different day in and day out through all that we're going through, when it's good and when it's bad, to know abundant life even now. So we're on the road to greatness or the road to greatest tragedy. Look at this last verse as we wrap it up. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. John keeps going back to the fact that there's only one of two choices. We either accept Christ or we reject him. It's one or the other. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life without end is the way it's phrased there. That means that when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of his sins, your eternal life begins and it never stops. But it also says in the exact same connotation, it's a contrast, to say that if you reject Christ, if you choose to not believe 
that he is a savior and you choose not to make him the Lord of your life, then the very wrath of God remains on you. It's much like what we talked about last week when someone was snake bit in the, in the, 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 the Hebrew wilderness. And if they didn't look to the bronze snake, they would not be saved. When they were bit, they were as good as dead unless they looked at the snake. And the same way for each of us. God's wrath remains. And it's interesting the way it's phrased there. It's not like God just all of a sudden got angry. It's his settled anger against the rebellion of mankind. It says, unless you do something, the wrath of God will remain upon you. And that comes with full surrender to him. Today is a unique day. February 21st, 1946, Eric Lytle passed away 75 years ago. Some of you are old enough to remember the movie Chariots of Fire. It's about a man who was training to be a minister in Scotland, but he had this incredible ability to run. And he would say that he felt the very pleasure of God when he ran. He was so good that he was invited to participate in the Olympics in 1924. Kind of had to work it out because his real purpose in life was to be a missionary. And he went to the 1924 Olympics in Paris, and he was scheduled to run his featured race on Sunday. And because of his convictions and beliefs, he refused to run. So then he was placed into the 400 meter, which was not his specialty. And he ran so well that not only did he win, but he set a world record. And then he left to go into the mission field in China. And in 1931, the Japanese invaded China. They began to take over people that were outsiders, including missionaries. Lytle had sent all of his family, his wife and three daughters, to Canada. He was incarcerated and put into a prison camp, treated harshly, abused horribly. It was later discovered that he had a massive brain tumor that was hospitalized for the last month of his life. Right before he died, the last words he said before he slipped into a coma and passed away, he said, it's full surrender. The very last words he said. As he talked about his life, about Christ, about where Christ fits in, he said, it's full surrender surrender. That's where we find true greatness is when we surrender our life to Christ. We all know that God loves us and he's created us to have a relationship with him. But unless we surrender our life completely to him, we will be forever separated because of our sins. And that's what John was talking about. Jesus came to make us right with God for all of eternity. All we have to do is humbly repent of our sins And make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of our life. Surrender everything to him. I'm guessing in a room of this size, there's several people that have never done that. And I pray that you would make this the day. Life passes so quickly. Seldom a week goes by that I don't learn of somebody that's passed away. My youngest uncle passed away this week. Found out yesterday. He was the guy that was supposed to outlive everybody. I don't know. I I don't even know the math, but he's, he's not 10 years older than I am. Life goes by so quickly. And it's not just for eternity, but it's for now. 
So if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would pray a prayer similar to this. For all of us, let's join together as we pray. Lord Jesus, if anyone listening today has never committed their life to Christ, I pray that this would be the moment in time, the moment in history, the moment in eternity, when the eternal life is secured through Christ. That they would voice a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, on this day, 75 years removed from those words that were uttered by Eric Lytle, may that be the mantra of our lives full surrender to you. Every part of our life, spotlighting you, showcasing you, so that we can find the true greatness of glorifying you in all that we do. God, thank you for my friends, those in this room, those listening via the internet, and I pray that your favor and blessing would be upon them, that you would give every one of us just increased capacity to follow hard after you. In Christ's name we pray. Love you all. Thanks for listening. And if I can be of any assistance in praying with you over at the cross, just know that you can migrate over there during this song. And if you want to meet with us after the service in the atrium, stay as long as you need to answer any questions, pray with you. Let God have his way in your life as we stand together now and as we worship through this song. My name, um,